Well, today uh, we are wrapping up our series, The Boys of Easter. We've been in this series just for a couple of weeks, a short three-part uh, three series. And today I want to get started by just stating kind of an obvious fact. Uh, it's a, something that I think most of us all realize, but, but we don't always necessarily think about. And that's that things aren't always as they appear. I mean, I think we all recognize that as adults. We realize that things aren't always the, the way that they appear. I mean, think about this. You realize this as an adult now. Because some of you grew up very poor. But you didn't know you were poor growing up, right? You just, you just this is how things were. And as you got older and you became an adult and then you had to pay the bills, you realized, oh, that's why mom did that. And that's why dad did that. That's why things were this way, because we just didn't have a lot of money. And, and that's okay. But things weren't the way that they appear. I'll tell you, there's another part where, where you realize that things aren't always the way they appear, and it's when you become a parent. When you become a parent, you think thing, things change, and, and you think, one day my kids will see the world the way that I see the world. They will understand this, because right now in their world, algebra doesn't seem very important, but algebra is important, and, and as they get older, they will discover... I mean, that's a terrible illustration. Algebra is not important. <laughs> All right, if, if you're a math teacher, I'm sorry. If you're in high school, algebra is important, okay? Do your work, but, you know, may, maybe a better example would be, you know, if you, you're raising a teenage daughter and, and uh, she's got a boyfriend and, and her boyfriend breaks up with her. And now you're, you know, she's all depressed and crying and all this. And you're just as a father like, hey, hey I want to go kill the fatted calf and throw a party, have a celebration because this daughter that was dead to me is now back and, and all that. <clears throat> things aren't always the way they appear, are they? We don't always see things the same way. And so today I want to talk about a relationship that's not necessarily as it appears. Specifically, I want to talk about the relationship between life and God. Because for, for many of us, life and God get confused, and, and they appear to be one and the same, okay? We, we often confuse God and life as the same. So when life is good, then God is good. But when life is not good, then God is not good. And, and if life gets really, really bad, and, and, and you're just experiencing extraordinary disappointment, it's easy to assume that there is no personal God. Or perhaps even worse, that there is no God at all. It's very, very easy for disappointment with life to turn into disappointment with God. It's easy for disappointment with life to become disappointment with God. And I understand this. Look, I think we all do. When, when your dreams don't come true, when, when it's just not working out, when you, you can't seem to get a break, when the people around you are doing really well, and, and just everything seems to be working out for them, but nothing seems to be going your way, it just we, we get this idea that maybe God's not there. Life isn't good, and so God must not be good. And people just say, well, pray, and just, just keep praying, and just trust God, and everything will work out, right? But after a while, you begin to equate your experience, your life experience with God. And you either decide that God is not good, or that God is not personal, or that God is not active, or perhaps, as I said, even worse, that there is no God at all. Because when dreams don't come true, when things don't work out the way that we want them to work out, we turn our frustrations, and oftentimes, understandably so, to God. And here's what makes this so complicated for us, especially if you grew up in the church. If you, were, if you grew up in the church, you were probably taught this. You were taught to believe in a God who was personal, who was behind everything that is a part of our everyday life, right? And I believe that, I believe that to be true. I was taught that, and, and I, I teach that. I believe that, that God is an, 
is a part of our everyday life. He is he's a personal God. But if that is true, and if you believe that, then it's virtually impossible to not to begin to confuse your life experience with God and to place your frustrations on God, to place all of the frustrations that you have with life and how things aren't working out for you, to place them on God. Again, that's why I say it's easy for disappointment in life to become disappointment with God or to get to the place where you just don't believe that God exists anymore. And that's the case for our final character that we're going to look at today. This was the the case for him. Today's character, his life spun completely out of control. We don't know a whole lot about this guy. We don't have very many details at all. We don't know how old he was. In fact, we don't even know what his name was. But we know this. He finds himself in a spot where his life is spun completely out of control. He finds himself in a Roman jail cell, which was probably just a hole in the ground. And he's condemned to death. He's so violent, he is so unpredictable that he can't even be trusted to be a slave in the the Roman society. He can't even be trusted to be be a rower in a a Roman galley. His only value to life is to illustrate what happens when you defy the Roman Empire. That's his only value in life at this point. And so Rome has condemned him to death. And they're going to crucify him as a warning to anyone else who might try to defy the Roman Empire. And this man that that we're going to talk about, like many other people, he had seen crucifixions. He'd seen the aftermath of crucifixions. He he had seen the remains of it. He had smelled crucifixions before. He knew exactly what he was in for. But he would fight, and he would curse, and he would scream, and he would be defiant. But in the end, it would not matter because death would come for him. And his body, it would be peeled down off of the cross. It would be put on a wagon and taken uh, to the south side of Jerusalem down into the valley of Gehenna. And there his body would be put in the city dump because there would be nobody there to claim his body. They wouldn't, Rome would not give permission for somebody to claim his body and give him a burial. There, there would be no defense. There would be no mourners. His friends, his family, his government, even his God had abandoned him. And he was to die as a common criminal. But this man, he would die the way that he lived. He would die defiantly. And on the morning that they dragged him out of that hole in the ground that he'd been in, he discovered this, that he would not die alone. In fact, there would be two other people that would be crucified alongside of him. One of him he might have heard of before, this Jewish rabbi named Jesus. And he thought, maybe the silver lining in this, in this cloud is that, you know, I'm not going to die alone, and all of these people are going to come to see him be crucified. So by proxy, they're going to see me as well. And Luke tells us how this, all of this works out. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Luke chapter 23. It says this. It says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him, with Jesus, to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Now, when we read this, we read through our New Testament, and we're just reading our Bibles, it's, it's easy to read through a verse like this and just keep going. But I'm telling you, there is so much packed into this one little verse, into the, actually this one little word, this, this word crucify. There, there's, so much, there's so much pain and so much noise and so much agony and, and violence and terror, and in some cases, so much mourning. And it took hours and hours and hours. We read this like, you know, they, they crucified him and they, they just went on. Like it was just a matter of uh, minutes, you know, maybe like, you know, in our capital punishment world, like the electric chair or lethal injection where it was just done and over with. But, but that's not how crucifixion worked. 
And in some cases, it would take two or three days for some people to die. Because people weren't always crucified the same. You know, sometimes it was ropes and nails, and sometimes it was just ropes. And, and there were all kinds of things that the Roman people used to, to crucify people. The Romans, you, you've heard probably this said before, but the Romans did not create crucifixion, but they certainly perfected crucifixion. And the scripture tells us that, that the other two people, the one that hung to the left and the one to the right of Jesus, that they were hurling profanity and curses at, at the Romans, that, at, at the people that were passing by, those who had come to watch the spectacle. And then as the violence continues, as, as the screaming continues, as, as the pain and all of the commotion of this very, very tumultuous moment in time, in the midst of all of that, the, these two criminals hear this guy in the middle, this Jewish rabbi, utter a word that was probably rarely uttered from a Roman cross. They hear Jesus say the word, Father. Now, it's been my experience that when men are dying, they don't call for their father, they call for their mother. But here Jesus says, Father. And then the next word that comes out of Jesus' mouth, they certainly had never heard from a, from a cross before, certainly a Roman cross. It says, Jesus said, forgive them. Father Jesus Christ, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. While the Roman soldiers, they, they split up everything that Jesus owned and they gambled away, uh, they gambled also to see who would win it back. While all of that is happening, while, while men are dying on his left and his right, and as we're going to see in a moment, as his enemies are celebrating, Jesus from the cross prays for them. There were people watching. People had gathered from all over town because everybody came out for a crucifixion. It was, it was a sight to see. It was a spectacle. Everybody came out for this sort of thing, especially a crucifixion so close to town. No doubt they lined the walls and the, and the hillsides and the city streets. Everybody gathered. And we understand that, don't we? Because there's, there's something about tragedy and pain that is just, it's embarrassingly fascinating. That, that we just have this fascination with it in it. But, but it wasn't just the citizens. It wasn't, wasn't just the people of Jerusalem. Luke tells us that there are a couple of different groups there. One of the groups he says that there is the rulers. The, the, the rulers, the very people that were responsible for Jesus being crucified. The very people that had him arrested and that were so threatened by his authority. They were threatened by his miracles. They were threatened by his words. It says, and the rulers even sneered at him. It wasn't enough that Jesus was dying. They sneered at him and they said, he saved others. Let, let, let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, if he's the chosen one. Let him save himself then. This was the group of people that had the most to lose more than any other group. This was the group that was, that was most at risk from Jesus' success. This was the group that was constantly slammed by Jesus' answers to their questions. And in this moment in time, they thought there will be no more humiliating answers to their got you questions. There would be no more fear on their part of the crowd. From now on, they were in charge, and this was their moment to take out all of, the, all of their frustration, all of their anger. This was their moment to get revenge for the last two and a half years of everything that had been building with, with them and Jesus. There was another group. The soldier, uh, Luke says the soldiers joined in, in as well. Luke says that the soldiers also came up. Now, this is kind of interesting to me because when you watch a movie, maybe you've seen The Passion of the Christ or, or you've just seen any other movie that, or picture that depicts a, a crucifixion, oftentimes the person in, in, that's being crucified, you see in the pictures, they're, they're two, their feet are two or three, maybe even four or five feet off the ground, and, and people are looking up at them. 
as they're being crucified. But that's not how it was done. Romans crucified people with their feet, you know, five to six to seven inches off of the ground. Because the whole idea of crucifixion was humiliation. It it was so that we could humiliate them while they're dying. And so they would be able to walk right up to them and, and be, you know, if they were tall enough, almost face to face with someone who was being crucified to scream in their face, to spit in their face, and then just turn around and walk away because they were only just a a, a few inches off the ground. And so the Roman soldiers, they walked right up to Jesus. They hurled their insults at him. And the text says that they offered him cheap, uh, that they offered him wine vinegar, which is basically just cheap soldier wine. And they said to him, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. Right? If you're the king of the Jews, uh, save yourself. And they referred to him as king of the Jews because there was a sign above him that, that Pilate had put there. When Pilate decided that Jesus was going to be crucified, they, he put a sign there that said, uh, king of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders, they protested, said, no, it needs to read, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, no, 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 no. It's going to say king of the Jews because I want everybody to know going forward that if you claim to be a king, if you dare defy Caesar, if you dare defy the Roman Empire, this is what you have to look forward to. Jesus wasn't crucified because he claimed to be the Son of God. Not by the Romans, anyway. He was crucified because he was a threat to the Roman Empire. And so the Roman soldiers, they play off of it, and they play a, play a leverage off of that sign, and they begin to mock him as king of the Jews. And, and finally, if all of that wasn't enough, the other two criminals... Maybe because they just can't stand Jesus' passive resignation to the circumstances. The other two criminals, they turn to Jesus and they begin to pile on the abuse as well. And here's something interesting. When you read the Gospels, Luke talks about one of the criminals hurling insults at Jesus. But Matthew, one of the Gospel writers, also a follower of Jesus, no doubt was there in the crowd, said actually both criminals began to turn their anger and turn their animosity away from the crowd and away from the Romans and toward Jesus. So imagine this, everybody in the crowd, all of the rulers, even the men on the left and the right, begin to hurl insults at Jesus. And, and there's a reason why they would do it, and it's picked up in the things that they said. One of the criminals, according to Luke, who, who hung there, he hurled insults at him, and, and here's what, what he said. He says, aren't you the Messiah? It, that's, that's where the insults come from. That's why he has this animosity. Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the special one sent from God? Aren't you the one who has some sort of special purpose? Aren't you supposed to be able to do something about this? If you were the Messiah, you would be able to do something about this. If you were the Messiah, this wouldn't even be happening to you. If you were the Messiah, you would be able to save yourself and you would be able to save us. But you can't be the Messiah because you can't save yourself and you can't save us. And besides, if there was a God, none of this would be happening. There there would be... There's just no justice in the world. There's certainly no just personal God. And the interesting twist on this is, and we know this because we're looking back, is that if any point in time one of the criminals were to have said, where is God in all of this? Because that's a fair question, right? When life is going bad, life's not going the way you want, that's a question we often ask. Where is God? The answer would have been about 12 feet to your right. That would have been the answer. He's right there. But then suddenly in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of that pain, in the midst of of the insult, suddenly in the midst of that, our guy, our criminal, he stops shouting because he begins to to sense something strangely selfless about this rabbi. Something strangely different about this Jewish teacher. And he begins to think, apparently, Father, Father, forgive them. 
And it dawns on him. He said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This may be, in fact, a righteous man. This is, in fact, a righteous man. Apparently, this man really was sent from God. We have it wrong. And he says to the other criminal, he says, he says it rebuked him. And he said, don't you fear God? He said, don't you fear God? Wait a minute. We've got this wrong. Stop, stop talking about him. Stop insulting him. Stop hurling your, your abuse at him because we've got this wrong. Don't you fear God since we are under the same sentence? And the implication being that since we are under the same sentence as him, he's saying, look, wait, 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 I think I see something, and you should see it too. Here's a man who's suffering just like we are suffering, but he hasn't abandoned his faith. He, he's, he's suffering in the exact same way that we're suffering, but yet he still sees, he's still able to, to call God Father. He's somehow able to maintain his faith, faith even though he's experiencing life just as we are experiencing life, and he still believes that God can be called Father. This is a man who's not drawing conclusions about God based on the way that others and life have treated him and are treating him. And suddenly for him, and maybe suddenly perhaps for you, there's this brand new category. And the criminal would say, besides, we are, we are being punished justly for, what, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And suddenly the wheels are spinning. And suddenly he's beginning to see Jesus in a way that nobody else in the crowd certainly not the other criminal, sees Jesus. And at this moment, this is so fantastic, at the very end of Jesus' life, I don't know if you've ever really thought about it this way, but at the very end of Jesus' life, his last conversation, his last conversation before he dies, Jesus has a conversation not with a righteous man, but with one of the most unrighteous men in the city of Jerusalem. And here's how his thought process must have gone. If an innocent man who suffers like a guilty man can maintain faith in God, if an innocent man who is experiencing life the same way that I'm experiencing life, if an innocent man who's suffering like, <clears throat> like a guilty man can maintain faith in God, how much more of a guilty man for whom there is some justification for his suffering? And then it dawns on him, oh my God, he really is the Messiah. Oh my God, he is God. The sign is correct. This is our King. And with all of the pain, all of the violence, all of the noise, all of the smell, to the best of his ability, this man turns his head and he says to Jesus, Jesus. And it's a question. It's a request. It's a plea. It's a dying man's last request. He says, Jesus, Remember me when you come into, because I, because I see it, I get it. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Not because of anything that I've done, in fact, in spite of everything that I've done, but Jesus, please remember me. Because if you can maintain faith in, in a God, in a good God, in the midst of all of these circumstances, perhaps there really is a good and just God after all. And what did Jesus tell the man? He said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me. Today you will be with me in spite of all that you've done. Not because of anything that you've done, in spite of all you will done. You will be with me not because you're, 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 you're rededicating your life or you're rededicating your life from a cross because look, there is no rededication of your life from a cross. All right? There is no repentance from a cross because there, there is no, like you know, from this moment forward, I, I'm going to do this. There is no, hey, I'll never do this again. Like, there is none of that. There is just the cross and death. And so the, the Jesus is not 
telling him this because he's vowing to change his life forever. No, there is no forever for this man's life. All there is from a cross is a desperate plea for grace and mercy. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Because don't miss this. Because my thoughts about you are not reflected in what's happening to you. That's, I think, what Jesus is trying to express to this man. My thoughts about you are not reflected in what's happening to you. My thoughts about you are, are different. My love for you is not reflected in what you are experiencing. I am not, and God is not your personal experience. And when I think we come to understand that, man, that changes everything for us. That bad things happen in life, but that does not mean that God is bad. What if that is true? What if that is true? What if life has broke, left you broken, but not God? What if life has left you abandoned, but God has not? What if life is not reflected? And what if life is not reflected to you, the true nature of God? This is Jesus' last message before he dies. This is his last message before he dies. That Look, God is not this, your experience. What you experience may not be the same as how God is. Just because life is bad does not mean God is bad. Just because you are suffering does not mean that God wants you to suffer. Just because you are having a terrible life experience doesn't mean that God can't be trusted. Luke says, here's what happens next. It was about noon when all of this took place. They were dragged out of their cells early in the morning, taken to to be crucified. And Luke says, it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And so for several hours they hung there in excruciating pain and misery. And the whole land until about three in the afternoon, the sun just stopped shining. No one really knew what time it was. And, and, it's, and Luke says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice. And the text tells us that when Jesus died, the curtain was ripped not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom to signify that everyone was welcome in the presence of God because in that moment, everything that had separated God from man and woman and all of human, humankind, all of mankind, was being taken care of on a hill through the death of Jesus. And Jesus made with a, his last statement, he cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, there it is again, Father, Father who could have stopped this, right? Father who, who could have kept this from happening. Father who I have decided I'm going to trust anyway. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. And so here's the question that we, get, we need to decide this morning. Here's the question you've got to resolve for yourself. Have you perhaps, and maybe you've never thought about it in, in these terms, have you perhaps because of life confused life with God? Have you ever drawn conclusions about God based on what you've experienced? Have, have you drawn conclusions about God based on what has happened to you, based on, on prayers that weren't answered, based on, on a loved one's experience, that, that things that, that happened to them that you thought God should have never allowed to anyone to experience? Have you drawn conclusions about God based on your experience? Because it's natural and it's easy. And maybe if you were to tell your story, we'd well, say, you know, it's, it's even unavoidable. Because, you know, for some of you, if you were to, to come up and tell your story, we'd say, you'd say, well, of course you lost faith in God. Of course you're angry with God. Of course you quit praying. Of course you, you walked away from the church. We get that. And I'm not trying to diminish that by any stretch. But here's Jesus' message to you from the cross as if to say, if you forgot everything else, or as to say, in case you didn't get this. It's in a sense he was saying, this is the most important thing I could ever communicate. That God, my Father, 
is not what you have experienced. That God can be trusted in spite of your experience. That God is not life. That God is not your life. God sent Jesus to bring you life. And here's why we gather. And here's why the story of... Here's the story of so many of us that you will find in Jesus precisely what you have not found in life. And that's grace and mercy and love. And if you choose to read Matthew, Mark, and and Luke, and John, here's what you'll discover about the life of Jesus. That he took life right in the face. That Jesus experienced life the same way that we experienced life. There, There were no shortcuts for him. He never played the God card. He, he never you know, showed up to the restaurant and said, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm the Son of God, I'd like the, I'd like the corner table. No, he never did that. He, he, he never played the God card. Over and over and over there were opportunities for Jesus to leverage being Jesus for Jesus, and he never did it, not one single time. He knew what it meant to be lonely. He knew what it meant to be abandoned by friends when you need them the most. He knew what it felt like to know that God was saying no. And here's the thing, here's, here's the message, here's the takeaway that, that, Jesus is, that Jesus is saying, in spite of life, you can have confidence in God. That Jesus, in spite of life, his confidence in God has paved the way for us to have, in spite of life, confidence in God, right? And, and I've seen it, and many of you have seen that as well, that, that in spite of life, confidence in God. And I want to tell you, it's overwhelming, it's, it's awe-inspiring. And I've seen that on the faces of so many people in so many different kinds of circumstances who, who they just, life has not been good to them or, or life is not being good to them at that moment and they just cling to this in spite of life confidence in God. I've seen it at hospitals. I've seen it at grave sites. I've seen it in the eyes of children whose, whose families are just blowing up. I've seen it in the, parent, in the eyes of parents who've lost children. Couples who've lost jobs, families that, that just can't ever seem to get a break in. And yet week after week after week, they just show up and they worship and they serve. And I'm telling you, that kind of confidence in God is awe-inspiring. In fact, I would tell you today that you are sitting around the in spite of life faith crowd today. Because at the end of the day, what I hope that you discover is that perhaps Jesus' message from the cross for you is simply this. That yeah, life happens. And life is not always going to be easy. And life is not always going to be just a bed of roses. Life is, life is not going to happen the way that we think it ought to happen all the time. But in spite of that, God can be trusted. That yeah, experiences are just that. They are experiences, but your experience isn't God. And our disappointment with life, it might be completely understandable. But you don't have to be disappointed with God. Because life is going to happen. But God can still be trusted. And when you open your hands and and you surrender instead of clenching your fist in anger, when you finally decide that, hey, I'm sick and tired of of living like this, and and you open your hands to surrender instead of clenching your fist in in anger and resentment, you become a candidate for that life-giving, that life-changing grace and, and, and love of God that will at some level fill and define your personal experience. And so the challenge is simply this. Would you be willing... To surrender in spite of what life has delivered and handed you. Look, I get it. Life might not have been very good to you. Life might be not great in this moment. But would you be willing to surrender instead of clenching your fist in anger and in spite of the way that life has left you? That's the challenge. And I want you to know this, that you are surrounded today by people who would say, do it because of, the spite, because of that, in spite of life, confidence in God, it will change your life. 
Today, I, want, I, I just want to wrap up this series by giving you just a, a few moments to, to allow that truth to settle into each of us. That we can have confidence in God. That we can have conf- great confidence in God in spite of life. So whether it's physically or, or just in these next few moments in your heart, I want to encourage you to put your faith, your living act of faith, in the God who can be trusted in spite of what life has brought your way. In spite of how things might be happening or how they have happened in the past. Because God can be trusted. And that confidence in God is our hope. It's our living hope for eternity. Let me pray with us.